on, all right, everybody. Well, that's what I'm talking about, guys. We've made a great effort so far. Let's just keep it up. That's right. We can't have anyone freak out out there, okay? We've got to keep our composure. Hello and welcome to season eight of the Raise Your Game Show. I am your host, Alan Stein Jr. This season, I'm joined by three brilliant colleagues to discuss, dissect, and debate popular concepts in a series we're calling Confronting Clichés and Questioning Quotes. Turn my headphones up! And if I can be real about it. Be real, son. I mean, real? Be real, real, son. Our goal is to challenge conventional wisdom, stimulate thought, and model how to have a civil, respectful conversation with someone that disagrees with you. Joining me today are three rock stars. Dr. Amber Selking is the founder of the Selking Performance Group, the mental skills coach for Notre Dame football, and the host of Building Championship Mindsets podcast. Yes! That's awesome! Brian Levinson is the founder of Strong Skills, the author of Shift Your Mind, Nine Mental Shifts to Thrive in Preparation and Performance, and the host of the Intentional Performers podcast. I like it a lot. And finally, Joe Ferraro is a teacher, a keynote speaker, the host of the 1% Better podcast, and the creator of Damn Good Conversations. Did we just become best friends? Yep. All right, it's time to confront some cliches and question some quotes. Can you feel the tension in the air right now? I know I can. All right, so today we gather again for uh, uh, confronting cliches and questioning quotes, and I want to hand the mic over to Amber. Yeah, so one of the things that I love slash cringe when I hear people say is, you should always follow your heart, follow your passion. And like, man, I, I think that that's setting some people up for success because I see some people that are incredibly passionate about things or very heartfelt but have no actual skill to supplement that passion. And I, you know, I have literally sat in conferences where people have been encouraged, leave your current job. If you have a passion for coaching and speaking, leave your job and pursue this, follow your heart so that you can do what you love. And, and they literally said the phrase, this is where I first heard it was in this moment jump and build your plane on the way down. And I'm thinking, no, no, don't jump. Like you're not gonna be able to build it fast enough. You are about to crash. And I just think people get so like ill-advised in that, that we have got to be thoughtful about, you know, matching our passion with, with what we're good at and with like what the world needs. Because I've also seen people that are very passionate and, and have you know some skill to supplement that, but there's just not really an appetite in the world for what it is that they have. And, and they, never, they never fulfill that or they never bring to fruition um, what's in their heart to do. So, and listen, I'm a passionate person uh, and, and, I, and I have followed my heart in things, but to me, it is a mind-heart interaction where you've got to think through some things, build a network, around what it is, set like a short-term plan and a long-term plan and fulfill those things. So the follow your heart and passion uncontextualized to me is a recipe for disaster and a lot of crash planes. I think Brian's probably going to cite the work of Cal Newport from, from Georgetown and his neck of the woods here. That's the person I dial up when I think of this. And he agrees that it's terrible advice to follow your passion for a couple of different reasons. Um, your passions change over time being the one that I want to focus on here. If you would have told me that I would go to bed 
before playoff baseball was over as an adult, I just wouldn't have believed you. Right. Like I got angry with my dad for letting me fall asleep when Francisco Cabrera slid in, uh, hit, got the game winning hit and Sid Bream slid in safe. And dad, how could you do this to me? Well, you have school tomorrow. I want to stay up for every game when I'm an adult, I'm going to let my kids. I don't watch playoff baseball anymore. I'm, I'm listening and getting ready for an interview tomorrow. I want my lesson plan to be dynamite. I'm trying to find a coaching client that I could help the passions shift. So what do you do when you follow your passion and you build the airplane in midair and then you change three weeks from now, some Yahoo is going to tell this person, well, go ahead and switch gears again and follow this new passion. I think that's a different word. I think that's a whim. Now, what I do want to throw another uh, pepper in the gumbo here and complicate things is that passion can be an engine though. If we want to use the plane analogy, I don't know how sustainable any activity that requires an inordinate amount of time can be without passion. And I'm sure the scholars that are going to follow me here have probably the Latin orientation of what passion means. And I'm just going to assume which one of you will have that, but it's got to have something to do with bleeding. It's got to have something to do with heart. And it's, it's got to have something to do with this idea of almost the amateur, right? That to fall in love with a more. So I look forward to what that definition is, but, but that's the tension for me. It's, it's not following a whim, but having enough engine resources in reserve to get it going. Well, as soon as you said the word scholar, I'm thinking of Brian. I, I sure as hell know you weren't talking about me. So I'm going to go ahead and tee Brian up next. Last thing I am is a scholar. Gentlemen, possibly. Scholar, rarely. It's funny you mention that because in our last episode, Joe referenced Brian to Amber and said, Brian's really intense. And I thought he was talking about me at first. And then he was actually talking about Brian Kelly, the head coach at Notre Dame, which, you know, I'm sure is a swell guy, but um, I like, I can be intense. I can, I get that, but I think I have other sides to me too. So anyway, I don't know. I think I probably wanted to say that at some point and just needed to get that out. But I was actually confused by that statement as well. I was like, Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) No. So, and then he started saying how he's kind of, I'm sure he's funny or he could do some improv. And I was like, yeah, I, I think I could do that stuff too. Uh, so anyway, uh, Joe, Joe, look, I agree with what I've heard. I think um, Mark Cuban was big on this where he said, don't follow your passion, follow your effort, follow where you're, you're willing to give effort and you're willing to give energy. And, and if you put effort into something, you'll probably get better at it and you'll get good at it. And then once you're good at something, you're probably going to enjoy it a little bit more. And you're probably going to be more passionate about that thing. And it's interesting because I interview a lot of, I've worked at the NBA combine. I've worked with an NHL team, an MLS team, and they'll hire me to interview players uh, who want to get drafted. And I'll often ask them, why do you play your sport? And a lot of them will say, well, I'm good at it. And I've always just loved it. And, you know, because they're good at it, they loved it. Now, I think that's a good starting point. But then as you get into the professional ranks, you need to discover a new mission or a new reason why you do something. So a lot of times I'll challenge them and say, no, no, but what do you love about basketball? Do you love the competition? Do you love winning? Do you love the camaraderie? Do you love the gear? Do you love being alone in a gym and getting better? So I think passion can show itself in a lot of different ways. And you can be passionate about certain things in different ways. But I think what you're passionate about and identifying that will give you actually more data and more information because then you can take that thing and apply it to a lot of other other elements. So Amber and I both work with college athletes. Alan, you've worked with college athletes in the past and you often see their identity get questioned when they're a senior in college and they know they can't go pro. Uh, 
well, who am I? And we have to have a whole conversation about who they are. It's actually, they've just been doing football, but their talents might be that they are, are they stick with things or they're disciplined or they are inspiring, whatever those adjectives are that describe who they are. And so I do think that that identity piece is, is linked here as well. And the last thing I'll say is talent matters. We, we see talent in sports and we recognize it right away. But you can see talent in politics. You can see talent in music. You can see talent in teachers. I mean, Joe, you know, there are people that are just more talented at teaching than others. And whatever, however you define talent at your craft, they are talented. I just watched a documentary called Bringing Down the House that looks at AOC and these other three women that ran for Congress. And, and all of them had no shot to win. Well, AOC won. And regardless of what you think of AOC's politics, she's talented. She's quick. She's witty. She's articulate. She is charismatic. She's got some talent that matters if you want to be elected as an official. The other three women, they, they all came from, from non-political jobs. And that was sort of the idea of the documentary. But you could see her talent. And so I think sometimes we just say, follow your passion and without any sense of, well, what are you talented at? And if that talent aligns with your passion so that you can maybe become great, I think we do do a lot of disservice to our youth and, and not just our youth, people that are in their 20s, 30s and 40s by just saying, follow your passion and with no context of what they're capable of and where they want to go and what they want in the future. One thing, well, first of all, I think you just proved why you are a scholar. Well done, Brian. That was a, uh, a master class. Excellent as always. Uh, Alan, it's actually interesting. I don't think I'm a scholar and I think I wouldn't be, honestly, I don't, I'm not passionate about reading psychology text. I actually think Amber is more interested in a lot of the scholarly text. So if I were to be a professor at a university, I don't think that would be a good thing for me to go follow because my passion is actually completely around relationships and people. And I think I would struggle with a group class and that dynamic. Um, I might be passionate about it, but I don't think it would actually align with what's needed to be really good at that craft. I got to jump in and defend Alan on this one. I uh, Not that that's the, the place to go, but uh, your book is completely uh, research-based. Your book is uh, uh, completely populated with scholarly, that's a word I'm using on purpose, end notes and footnotes. Um, you base it in science, you base it in research. So I think Alan's exactly right, especially when it comes to the intersection between academia, Brian, and relationships. That's what happens at the collegiate level. To have relationships without scholarship is meaningless. And without scholarship, there is no point of really having a deep conversation. So uh, I don't want to hear it is the simplest way I could put it about your scholarship. Um, but I think that that's a high compliment. And it's also something that I understand why you're deflecting it. It's very odd to, to wear the badge of scholar. We get it. And Alan's poking fun a little bit, but certainly in a way where it's complimentary and it's research-based. So let me ping that back to you with that little defense that you didn't need, Alan. Yeah, and Alan, I'll go, I'll go to you. To Brian, this is an intervention and <laughs> we are here to help you see just how great you are and how scholarly. And I, so I, I well, amen, Joe. It is, we, we do identify from a young age as to whether or not we might be smart or gifted and talented. And I will tell you, in my academic career, I was never seen as gifted. I, I, this is serious. Like even in grad school, I love sports psychology. There were people that got better grades than me that did better on tests. Like I, there is a story inside my head that says like, you're not 
an academic. And that's probably why I pour so heavily into the book to back that up. And, and so there is something in here as far as the stories that we tell ourselves. And there is something that probably drives me to overcompensate for that because for a long time, I didn't see myself as that way. And I probably still don't, but Joe, I appreciate it. Amber, I appreciate it. Alan, I'll kick it over to you as it relates to passion. Cause I interrupted you, but it, I, I, I felt obligated to do so. But I, but I think, sorry, Alan, Alan's, Alan's out on this conversation, <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I also think though, that, that you're a business person and you care business person, but you also care about adding value to the world. And there's enough people out there talking about like, the power of positivity and thinking right and all of this stuff that isn't grounded in something um, of actual science. And I think that there's something in our society that when we talk about the scientific support for these things, that allow people to hear it in a different way. And so, you know, that that bolstering one, hopefully it's helping you redefine the story in your own head about what that means about yourself. But I also think it's a testament to your core identity of your deep care and concern for people and making them better and being able to show, you know, a, a broad way, a, a range of thinking about and conceptualizing information with the intent of growing and getting better and being who you want to be in moments that matter most to you, so. I was just trying to add some levity and, and show some type of sense of humor. And somehow this thing's completely gone off the rails for the last 20 minutes. When I hear the word scholar, especially in regards to philosophy, I think of someone that is thoughtful and someone that is a critical thinker. And, and I think of both of those traits when I think of you, Brian. So I understand your deflection of not being a high academic. And I can see that because your emotional intelligence is off the charts. But when I hear scholarly in regards to being a philosopher, I think thoughtful and critical, deep thinker. And I think you're both of those things. But nevertheless, I just tried to be funny. And the three of you have ruined that completely. So I want to thank you all for that. Um, now, to, to kind of bring a lot of these things back, one of the things I'm realizing now that we've done four or five of these types of episodes, uh, I'm finding that these cliches and these quotes that we're confronting and we're questioning, you know, they're, they're very short, they're very specific. There's something kind of, of limericry about them. Like there's something that, that, that they're very poignant and that's where we kind of fall short. Most of these things at best are incomplete. And, and I think so much, I'm, I'm so in alignment with Amber that just a blank prescription of follow your heart or passion is grossly incomplete. Uh, it could be a starting point, and I, I absolutely agree that in order to sustain excellence for long periods of time and to muster the requisite energy and effort and enthusiasm to be good in anything, you got to be pretty darn passionate about it. So I don't think anyone's questioning that passion is important, but it's only one piece of the puzzle. And, and to Brian's point, talent absolutely matters. Everybody is born with some genetic predispositions and gifts to be good at something. And if what you're passionate about is in alignment with those things and you understand the process of getting better at specific skills, then you've created the perfect storm to be, to, to be good at something. And I think those are the things that we should pursue. But yeah, passion Alan, in and of Alan, itself that, is definitely not enough. Alan, to that point, like how do you go about coaching people toward that? So if you have a person that is super passionate about something, how would, you, how would you help guide and direct that passion in a way that you think could explore maybe the talent within that or could prepare that talent or bring it to fruition at some point? Like how do you, how, what, what frameworks do you use to think about that for, for yourself or for your clients? Well, well, for myself personally, you know, I, I try not to pigeonhole anything and be too specific in a target. You know, I think 
what I'm most passionate about is I, and I just use the term filling other people's buckets, like pouring into others is something that I'm passionate about. I find meaning in it. It's something I enjoy. And, and at the risk of lacking humility, I've always been fairly good at that. I've always been pretty decent just about connecting with others and inspiring and motivating and helping and teaching. Like that's, that's just something that, that I've enjoyed and been fairly good at. And for the first 20 years of my career, those, that intersection took form as a basketball performance coach where I wanted to help middle school and high school age basketball players improve their athleticism on the court. So I could take my passion for the game and my passion for filling buckets and combine it with my understanding of, of biomechanics and human physiology. And that, that was the perfect intersection. As I got older and my passions and my skill set started to mature a little bit, uh, that did not interest me near as much as going over to the corporate side and wanting to fill the corporate bucket, but do so more through the context of, of leadership and cohesion and culture and, and all the things that, that you three do at an elite level. So I've always managed to stay in that strength zone, but the actual point of intersection has moved. And, you know, at 45 years old, uh, I don't anticipate I'll be doing what I'm doing now in the same form for the rest of my life. My guess is that point of intersection will move again. But with my, my, my primary passion of being filling buckets and that aligning with my talents, there's an infinite number of things that I could pursue that would do those things. So that's the other thing is I, I don't think there's a, a one answer for anyone. When you find what it is that you love and find what it is that you're good at, there's most likely a variety of different forms that can take. And that piggybacks on a previous episode we did about, do you try some different things to see what it is that you like best? But Alan, I'm really curious about your journey here because you know, you had built a reputation in the strength and conditioning community. You were training trainers. You were working with one of the top programs in the country. You were getting tasked to go to camps for, you know, NBA player camps. You were really carving out a niche for yourself in the basketball strength training uh, industry. You built a big social media following. Um, it, why did you decide to pivot? And why did you decide to go into writing a book and um, doing speaking? Because I would imagine both the book and the speaking, you weren't necessarily good at when you maybe first started with it. So can you just walk us through what you followed to make that transition and that shift? I love the direction this is going where it's all about me and, and my journey and everything that I've done. So I, I appreciate that, Brian. And assuming you both have another, or you three have another 40 to 45 minutes, I would really like to dive deep on this. I know my listeners are leaning in, sitting on pins and needles. Uh, now, kidding aside, uh, to answer your question, I started to feel a little bit burnt out on what I was doing. Like the, the task of helping, for the most part, 15 and 16 year old boys run faster and jump higher it just didn't excite me to the degree that it did 10 years before. So my passion for that very specific niche was really starting to wane. And I have so much respect for the game and so much respect for athletes and coaches uh, that there was no way I was just gonna to play charades and just mail it in. I knew that my heart was not in being in the gym with those kids as much as it had been in the past. So I knew I had to make a change. Uh, along those lines, a seed had been planted in me probably 10 years prior when I actually saw a motivational speaker speak at a basketball camp. And I remember at that moment watching this guy going, one day I want to do that. 
like this guy has got a room full of kids and coaches, like literally leaning in. He's got us thinking, he's got us laughing, he's got us crying, he's telling stories. I want to be able to do that one day. So the seed had been planted and then it, it just, those things kind of aligned and said, you know what? I'm not loving what I'm doing now. The passion is starting to wane. My interest is in doing this new thing. Let's see if I can pursue that. And with that being said, while being an actual keynote speaker was certainly something that was new, being in front of groups of people talking about things I enjoy talking about was not new to me. I'd been doing that my entire basketball career. Now, granted, I was doing it in gym, gym shorts, you know, talking to kids sitting there, you know, uh, on the gym floor. But basically, the, the craft of being in front of people and speaking was not new to me. So I knew that I had the chops to be good at it if I was willing to commit to the craft and work on the actual semantics of getting good at it. So um, I didn't jump blindly. I had a feeling that I would be good at doing something if I was willing to put in the work to practice and hire a speaking coach, which was the very first thing I did. Um, so the way I looked at it was I didn't really change vocations completely. I just kind of pivoted to a new audience and in a new direction. And uh, for me, it completely relit my spark. And uh, I felt in my first couple of years of professional speaking that I had the exact same fire and passion as the first couple of years of being a basketball performance coach. And boy, that, that invigorated me beyond belief. So I, uh, I spent a couple summers as a mental conditioning coach down at IMG Academy. And my first summer down there, I forgot, I, maybe I didn't get the memo that it was a youth camp, but I went from like being in the corporate environment to in front of kids. And I was like, what? everybody sit down and stop moving. Like what is happening right now? So all that to say, if you can work with kids in a gym, corporate people are easy, right? So like you might have a suit on and look more buttoned up, but you got to be way more on your game when you're working with kids. I'm curious within that, Alan, like, was it a one day you decided to stop doing basketball performance and then you became a professional speaker or was there a transition period? Just walk us through what that was. Cause I think there's something important there for us. Well, a couple of things that are interesting, and, and this speaks to, to Joe as a teacher, and Brian, I know you've worked with, with many of the most elite youth players in the DC area. Uh, when I talk to some of my professional speaking colleagues, uh, most of them are petrified of being in front of kids. If you told that, and I'm talking about, you know, uh, men and women that command 70 grand to talk and have been on stages in arenas. And if I said you have to go talk to a, a high school auditorium, they would be petrified. So I, I agree with your, uh, your insight, you know, and evaluation that if you can be good in front of kids, then the rest of it can somewhat fall into place. So for that, I'm thankful that I had the correct order of operations. Uh, for me, it was both. There was... A seed had been planted and I started feeling that it was time for a transition, just kind of esoterically. But then there was this epiphanal moment uh, where I was actually in Germany. I was speaking at a clinic uh, for a group of coaches in Germany. And, and one thing about basketball, even though the rest of the world has gotten really good at the game, most of the world looks at the USA as like the epicenter of basketball. I mean, I know the sport was invented from a Canadian, but it's kind of a USA thing. And they think anyone that comes out of the USA is an absolute rock star. So I'm at this event and, and I mean, they're treating me so well. These coaches, I mean, they're so kind and they're hanging on every word I'm saying. And I'm just up there and I'm just not feeling alive. And I just didn't even, it was almost like, I don't even really want to be here. And that was a major red flag for me because again, I have so much respect for the game and for coaches and for athletes 
that the thought of being up there and not being all in, you know, uh, heart and mind and body, uh, I just knew that, all right, it's time to make a change. And when I got home from that trip, I really sat down and was like, okay, I need to make a pivot. Uh, what exactly is it? Am I going to pivot to? And how am I going to make this transition? You know, uh, I, I was, you know, self-employed, you know, so it's not like I had to go turn in my, my pink slip or my two weeks notice. I just had to make a decision that I need to transition out of what I'm currently doing uh, and fulfill my current obligations. But then what is it that I want to try to do next? And because I'm an incredibly linear thinker, you know, I, I basically mapped out a, a very specific process and, and mapped it out. And I, I know it to this moment, exactly how am I going to leave basketball and enter a new space? You know, uh, as Brian mentioned, I'd been working to develop some credibility in this one space. And now I'm going to leave that and go somewhere where I have zero credibility, zero name recognition. I mean, I've never had a corporate job in my entire life. And now I'm going to try to convince people to hire me to tell them how to be better at something that I've never actually done. So I, I really had to kind of map out a plan to, to, to go in that direction. And that was about four, four and a half years ago at the time of this recording. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. As a professional keynote speaker, author, and content creator, my goal is to add as much value as possible to you personally and professionally, to help you maximize your performance individually and organizationally. To do so most effectively, I've decided to shift my focus away from traditional social media. While I will continue to post on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, I'm reserving my best stuff and my newest stuff exclusively for this podcast, my full timeout email newsletter, and my YouTube channel. I recommend you subscribe to all three so you don't miss a thing. And I give you my word, every episode of this show, every email newsletter, and every video on YouTube will help you and your team raise your game. You can subscribe to this show in whatever platform you prefer. You can join my email tribe at allensteinjr.com, and you can subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash Jr. I hope you decide to join the movement. Alan, you said something that landed with me when you said, I didn't feel alive uh, when you were over there in Germany. And there's positive psychology is something that uh, I'm sure you all are aware of. It housed at University of Pennsylvania, Martin Seligman, and uh, they really studied the science of happiness. And it's fascinating research. A little while back, though, I made a shift as far as my focus in my life. And I said, I don't want to be happy. I want to feel alive. And so when you said that, that just resonated with me because I think a lot of people are trying to find their passion or find happiness. But if they just think about and reflect on when do I feel most alive, that's going to give you a lot better of an answer. And I think the mistake that a lot of people make is thinking that, you know, their work has to be the most engaging, alive experience in their life. Um, there's all kinds of options. Like if you work a nine to five, maybe that gives you the freedom and autonomy to do whatever the heck you want. If you work in the school system, like Joe, Joe's fascinating to get your perspective on this. Like you're a teacher and you've built this incredible podcast where you're asking these amazing questions. And now you're actually getting to do a combination of things without necessarily getting rid of the thing that you've built your, your expertise and your craft on. And so I think sometimes we limit our possibilities rather than really reflecting on when do I feel most alive? And then 
look, we live in a real world. Bills are due. You have to earn money. Like th- th- there's a lot that goes into our decision-making as far as being productive adults. Um, so I think that idea of feeling alive and then looking at what are the possibilities that exist without necessarily just, oh, I'm done. I'm out. I quit. Uh, and so Joe, I'd love to get your perspective as a teacher and a podcaster and, and how you think about all this. I appreciate that. I, I just signed my second uh, coaching client. I was happy to hear that Alan um, hired a speaking coach because my, my two clients right now are trying to be better verbal communication communicators. It's ironic that I messed that up, but, but one is a writer and one is a tech professional and they both have different interests in the speaking world. And I think both of them have a real opportunity to make more money and advance further if they're better speakers. So just from getting in front of one of these microphones and hearing and hosting a lot of conversation has put me into a place where I don't feel any imposter syndrome when I sell to them because it's literally a direct value add that I see very clearly. And I have a lot to do in terms of the business savvy part of it and, and whatnot. But that's an example to say, I think I share something with Alan and, and clearly the other two of you for sure, which is what is the passion? The passion is a passion for life. I don't want to be corny in saying that, but Alan could be a college basketball coach and Amber could be a college soccer coach. I don't know your sports history, Brian, but I know you can do something outside of the world of mental performance and, and being an author. And because you're skilled, because you put the work in, the passion and I had a chance to look it up. It has to do with, and I think even Amber as coming from a spiritual place will recognize this. It has to do with what you're willing to suffer for. So Alan, it strikes me, was no longer willing to suffer for the wick that was going down when he talked about the youth sports in a gym. Um, I feel confident I can go into any uh, gymnasium in the country or auditorium and talk to teenagers. I didn't realize, and honestly, that that many people had a phobia of that. So I guess I should notice it when I get my hair cut. They'll always say, oh, that's a tough age. But they never tell me what the good age is, right? They never say, oh, but, but I, I would be easier to teach. And they don't. So uh, I think the passion has to do with what are you willing to suffer for? And let's assume that it is correct. Follow your, your passions, correct advice. There's got to be a follow-up to that, which is, well, okay, wh- how do I find that passion if I'm a young person? And I think some of the questions that you three are so skilled at asking help. One that I've had a lot of success with young people, and I think it could work for people listening, is what do you want to do at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon, right? And I don't mean go to Bora Bora and be, you know, kind of looking on those stilted shacks. That, that sounds great too. But what's the work you really want to do? And then we can begin to work from there. And then one further one is what do you not want to do, right? Going by that deficit model. What's something you definitely don't want to do for work? And finally, discovering the passion that Alan has, where I'd probably hire him to coach, you know, a team, I'd hire him to speak to a group is because he brings the hard earned charisma and skills and communication skills. It's a package that comes with it. And I think that that's the piece discovering not what your passion is in some uh, abstract way, but tangibly, what is the skill package you bring along with that passion? You know, it was interesting. My uh, senior year at Notre Dame, there was a freshman course that I talked my best friend and I into, um, and it was called, it was like a whole class on self-identity. So it was like all these freshmen and then me and my best friend who were seniors. And we read this book, actually, it's right behind me, um, called Let Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer. Really short 
quick, simple read, but powerful in looking at what's our purpose? Like, what does that mean? And our professor defined purpose is where like your deepest passion meets the world's deepest need. And that was sort of a, a point of context that we got to think about purpose, like this big concept, right, of purpose that seems so daunting that I think very few of us engage in actual discovery to some answers to that question. Um, and it was fascinating. I'm sure there were so many thrilled parents of students who actually changed majors because they realized I am being a pre-med or a pre-law major because that's what my family expects of me. I can't even stand to look at blood. Like, what am I going to do in the medical world? You know? Um, and so I, again, I think some of that is grounded and like shifting to a history major, like, is that going to help you get to where you want? And if you want, you know, and if it can, but let's be mindful, we marrying that, that passion with intent. Um, and, and I just, I think that things like identity and self-discovery, like, is this process that if we engage on some of those critical questions, like you just mentioned, Joe, it can lead us to find what are we willing to suffer for? Like, and what does that really mean? And to me, then it becomes more about who are we, not just what we do. And when we can find that similar thread that runs between it, then, you know, there's going to be seasons of life where we're not loving what we're doing, but if we can bring who we are to those moments, right. And use that as a catalyst to find the what's in our life that are matched with the who's, I think it just allows us to find new seasons and elements of life. Like I didn't even know sports psychology was a thing when I was an undergrad, you know, I just knew that like, team dynamics and being great was like something I thought we should all do and embark on. And then I realized that there was a whole field of science behind this when I was working in corporate America. And so I think, again, if you just find what are, are what's your passion and, and explore that while tangibly matching that with like sustaining your life and being a contributing member of society, you can find greatness along the way. Yeah. Amber, you sparked for me, Ikigai, which uh, it's a Japanese term and phrase. And Ikigai basically asks, what does the world need? What can you be paid for? Uh, what is it that you're good at? And what is it that you're passionate about or that you love? And it's really it, it translated Ikigai to English means your reason for being. And I think of that and I think of a calling and what is our calling? And I want to be really clear on this. Like your calling or your Ikigai could come from multiple places. It doesn't just have to come from your job. And I think too often in, in Western society, we often just assume that that's your job because that's what you're spending so much time on. But you can set your job up to allow you to get Ikigai in other areas of your life or a reason for calling. And then I just want to hit on the suffering idea because I do think that you don't have to suffer or you don't have to be willing to suffer to have the thing that you love most. And I just was in a tweet storm or thread, uh, whatever they call it. It feels like more of a storm than a thread. Um, but in it, we were talking about sacrifice and do you have to sacrifice in order to be great? And one of my clients who was an EOD, one of the top EOD military professionals in the world, his job was literally to disarm nuclear bombs. Like he is unbelievable. Um, he also ran a nonprofit. He now has a startup. He also was a division one soccer player at the Naval Academy. He's seen a thing or two, right? And he jumped in and said, I never felt like I was sacrificing when I was abroad. Um, my wife who had to raise her, our kids by herself 
and had to worry about me every single day, she had to sacrifice. But for me, I was stepping into my calling and I was doing what I was meant to be doing. And so while others might view him missing weddings and, and, and events and holidays as a, as a real sacrifice, he never really saw it that way. And that was just his perspective. And if you ever talk to military people, um, there's a wide range of military people, not to overgeneralize, but I've talked to a lot that struggle with when someone says, thank you for your service, because a lot of them have said to me, I signed up for it and it was a calling and it was my honor to do it. So I appreciate you saying that, but this was something I chose to do. So I know I'm going a little off tangent, but I think it all comes back to us finding our ikigai and the fact that our perspective of whether or not we're suffering dictates whether or not it truly is a sacrifice or it's not. I think sometimes we just assume that somebody is sacrificing when they may not look at it in that way. Well, you know, it's crazy, Brian, that you say ikigai because I've never heard that word said out loud. So I'm going to assume that's the correct pronunciation. I've only seen it written. So you definitely are incredibly scholarly to be able to pronounce that correctly. So um, you do raise a great point. And I actually saw an interview with, with Kobe Bryant one time and what they were talking about was sacrifice. That was the word they used, not suffering. And Kobe said, you know, I've never made a sacrifice in my life. A sacrifice means I wanted to be doing something different. He's like, I've never wanted to do anything different than be in the gym at four in the morning working on my craft. Other people think that's a sacrifice because they'd rather be sleeping. I wouldn't. So he said, I've never made, and of course he was being a little bit dramatic for effect, but he said, I've never made a sacrifice because I've always wanted to do those things that I was doing. And he was talking very specifically about, you know, what he poured into the game to be the best player he could be. Um, but, but, but I also, this, this makes me think of a few other things uh, and I don't want to dovetail this too far off, but it's kind of this concept also though, that, you know, if you really love what you do, then you never have to work a day in your life. And I don't really buy into that either. You know, I, I do love what I do. I love filling people's buckets, but I like the three of you, I work really hard. And every single moment of every single day is not the, you know, puppy dogs, ice cream and unicorns. Like sometimes you have to be willing to make momentary sacrifices or go through some minor suffering for the greater cause. And, and that's when the passion for what you're doing is so great that you're willing to put up with some of these minor, you know, uh, things that, that we would need to tolerate on a daily basis. And then the last thing I'll think, uh, uh, say, as I was thinking of this earlier, I know I'm somewhat jaded because I grew up with two parents that were elementary educators, teachers for 30 years. So I, I have a very strong respect and appreciation for teachers and people like Joe. Uh, obviously I've been in sports and around coaches my whole life. So I have an equal affinity for the coaching fraternity and sorority uh, and think both jobs are incredibly altruistic, you know, right up there with frontline workers. You're talking about people that for very little compensation devote their lives to the betterment of young people. But with that said, I do believe as a responsibility that you have to be in it to win it, you know, as they say. And when I hear a teacher saying, you know, I just don't like doing this anymore. I feel like yelling, then please get out. Please, by all means, stop doing it because you owe it to these young people to have some passion and to have some fire and to love what you're doing. And there's nothing wrong with the fact that your flame went out. There's nothing wrong with that, but by all means, get out. If you don't love it and you're in that position, you know, I don't want to go see a doctor that doesn't love helping people. I'm not going to see a doctor that's burnt out. You know, you don't schedule my surgery for the next day. Like you better love what you do and love helping people. If you're going to be cutting me open. And it's the same thing 
with my children. I don't want anyone teaching my children that doesn't love teaching. Now that doesn't mean they don't get caught up with the daily annoyances and yeah, parents can be a pain in the butt and I can't believe we have to keep doing Zoom. That, that's just part of, of the ante of sitting at the table. But I think uh, these most altruistic jobs of teaching, of coaching, of being a frontline worker, uh, you should only be in it if you are passionate about that. And the moment you're not, by all means, for the betterment of everybody, please get out. Yeah, it's powerful. I can't defend teachers that, uh, that, are, that are burnt out and remain. There's no question. <laughs> A uh, couple pieces of quick punctuation. One, Brian, you'll be amazed. Tomorrow's lesson plan is having the seniors uh, present on Google Meet their Ikigai. So uh, literally, that's how aligned we are, trying to figure out that. And they struggle with it. It's actually something that I'm going to have to devote some more attention to towards the end of the third and fourth quarter because they struggle and they need some building blocks on finding their passion and what they're good at and their skills. Uh, so I think that's a key piece of it. Um, I think you nailed it, right? The idea that we're trying to be on a search, we're on a process. Um, and I think it could be super fun. And I'm glad you pushed back nicely to, to Brian's suffering. There are parts of every job that are suffering. I'm sorry, the Kobe example, it, it's probably more um, archetypal than helpful for people because he's so otherworldly in all the ways, his skill level, his passion level, his drive level. And, and when we think of pers professional sports, they make a great uh, aspiration, but there's so many great things about that job that you might have to go deep into the bucket to find things that aren't great about it. So I think that that's something worth mentioning, but man, you guys have, um, you've given me a lot to think about and um, I think it's helpful for people. I really do it. I'm, I'm glad that, that we've rallied this together to get different perspectives and to think all the ways I have a lot to think about, even as we begin to wind down. If what we're challenging, if the, the cliche that we're confronting is you should always follow your passion, uh, I'll start with you, Amber, then, then how would you re, re, uh, reword that? Or if you're going to edit that, what should the actual cliche be? And don't worry if it's not as, as rhythmic as the one we've been presented with. I think follow your passion and build a plan to bring it to fruition and don't stop until you make it happen. <laughs> but I, I think there's a short-term game plan and a long-term game plan. I think in all aspects of life, we're always playing both games and people that try to play one and sacrifice the other, or think that there's only one at play often are either short-sighted or far-sighted and miss out on manifesting that calling into the world. Now, I would, I would go to find the spark that's underneath the passion, whatever that spark is that's, that's showing up. So Joe, you talked about video games earlier for you and me playing Contra as kids. There's no opportunity to do that as a vocation. There's no, there was nothing today. If your son's a really good gamer, there's professional leagues and you can earn a living and, and, and do it. And so timing matters and the world matters and our society matters. But even for your son, who's a gamer, like what is the thing that he loves about it? Is it competition? Is it problem solving? Is it innovation and creation? Is it teamwork? And there's always a thing underneath the thing that we all need to try to figure out because we make the mistake that it's often the thing. And it's very rarely the thing. And Amber and Alan, you know, being in sports, everybody wants to work in sports. Well, why? I love it. Okay, get in line. There's a long list. You know, you go to South Bend, Indiana, you'll find a bunch of people in a football stadium. How many people they hold? A hundred, hundred thousand less? Eight hundred and four or something. Plenty of people that want to 
be uh, involved in football in some way. Okay, cool. But what is the thing that is actually underneath it? Because if you can figure that out, then you can apply it to a lot of other elements. And so I think like that's the mistake we make is we think that it's the thing that you do that is the passion, but I think it's actually something underneath it that you actually truly love. And if we can spend time, Joe, I think it's amazing that you're spending time with high school kids to really unpack that because no one did that for me when I was in high school and, and that no one did that for me when I was in college. I, I had to find something way later from a mentor that happened to get lunch with me one day and introduced me to something that I didn't know existed. And, and luckily it aligned with some things that I'm good at and, and something that I think I could be really good at in the world and could add value to the world in. And, and I think a lot of that's honestly luck. Um, but if we could be more intentional with finding that out for, for our youth, like what a gift to give to the world. Well, thank you. And I think we found the title to Brian's next book. It's the thing underneath the thing that is the actual thing. I like that. That, that flows very nicely. Let's use that. Go ahead, Joe. You know, it's funny. When I go to the dinner table in a few, I'm actually going to ask my son that exact question about what it is he loves about gaming. And I will report back quickly. Uh, we, in May, we do a unit where they actually apply for a job. Um, we do a, a resume, a cover letter, and then a 15-minute interview for the job that they want. I do the research. And I bring in guest uh, interviewers throughout the school. Since we've gone to remote learning, don't be surprised if I call upon you three to be the guest Zoomer in and then give some feedback on how these kids did. I'll, I'll, I'll pick you out some really awesome kids. Um, but I think that to answer your question, Alan, um, I would probably say work hard to discover what your passion is. And then somehow, I don't have the verb, but, but work to have skills to support that passion. That's fantastic. You know, th this is actually a good question for you to ask your your son, Joe, because um, I don't know enough about gaming. My kids are into it a little bit. They play Fortnite and, and Roblox and, and Minecraft on their iPads. But, you know, and they name some of the guys. I think there's a guy named Ninja and, you know, so forth. But but ask your son, if you can't be the actual guy, you know, playing the eSport, making the money like Ninja, how many other jobs can you name that that fall under the umbrella of being in the gaming industry? Because that you know, as, as Brian alluded to, when we were all younger playing Contra, there really weren't too many opportunities underneath that. But now uh, I bet you there's 15 different job titles or job descriptions that would fall under gaming outside of being the one that's the actual athlete in this case. Uh, I would always kind of say with a, you know, tongue in cheek, joking with, with kids when they say, you know, my goal is to be in the NBA. And I would say every single one of you can absolutely be in the NBA. It's going to be very hard for you to be there as a player, but there are so many jobs in the NBA that you could have. And just as an exercise, just for some fun engagement, you know, I'm talking about a little kid camp uh, and I'm not trying to squash anyone's little. No, I like that. You I will like never that. play in the NBA. <laughs> you have no chance, you know, and get them to just, they would start shouting out all of the different things you could be to be in the NBA from being Adam Silver to being Mark Cuban, to being someone that, that sells tickets, to being the mascot, to being the guy that sweeps the court, to being, I mean, there are so many. So if your goal was to be in the NBA, there are a lot of different avenues you can take. And, and I don't say that to demean someone's dreams. And I know when they say it, their goal is to be the athlete, but that's just to let them know, hey, you, you could be a coach, you could be an athletic trainer, you could be a physical therapist, you could be a nutritionist, you could be a mental skills coach like you guys. There's so many paths to get there. So that would be an interesting exercise. And you should report back on what your son says on if that's the goal is to make a living in esports, what would that look like? 
Hey, Alan, and I think the mistake people make, though, is they, they mistake the passion being sports without really getting into, well, what elements of it? And so we find people that say, hey, I want to work in the NBA. And you ask why. And they're like, well, I'm a fan of the Warriors. It's like, OK, then go be a fan of the Warriors like this. Like every job is a job. And to your point earlier, like it, it, I don't believe in that idea that you'll never work a day in your life if you love what you do. I love what I do. And, and every day is, is work. And, and I think that that's spot on. And I think the mistake we make is by telling people, hey, um, you, you should go work in sports because you're passionate about sports. It's like, it, it's such a broad thing. And then they get to the sports place and they're doing telemarketing or ticket sales. And then they realize, gosh, this is kind of annoying. I have to make 50 calls a day. I don't really enjoy this. Oh, but I get to go to the games. Well, what if I had another job that allowed me to buy tickets to go to the game and I could just go be a fan. And, and Amber, you know, this, like, sometimes it's fun to just be a fan and not be connected to the business of the sports. And I think you find a lot of people in sports and Joe, I'm telling you, I've worked with NBA players who, who did not think like Kobe because their job requires them to be on the road so much. And their job is very structured and there's a lack of autonomy in it. And, and there are challenges to being a pro athlete. Look at what just happened with the bubble. They had to go to a bubble in Orlando and a lot of guys really, really struggled with that. Um, so I think sometimes we glamorize the pro athlete and we don't always show these other sides of it because they do get to play a game and playing a game is fun, but that's just a small part of their job. Their job requires so much more than that. And same thing, you work in sports. Okay, cool. You get to go to a game. Well, as you get older, you're probably not going to want to go to a game on a Friday night and a Saturday night and a Monday night and a Wednesday night. You're probably going to want a life outside of the work. So you better, you better love the thing underneath the sport that is actually going to be the business of it. So I think that's why you, you see people say, I want to work in sports and they have no clue about really what they're passionate about, including pro athletes. And that's why you see pro athletes retire early sometimes um, because they actually realize that their passion might be something completely different um, than, than the sport. So it's just an interesting conversation to have. And Amber, I'm grateful that you brought it up as a theme for us to discuss. And now a word from our sponsor. How would you like a free copy of my ultimate 90 day planner and habit tracker? If so, all you have to do is visit allensteinjr.com and subscribe to my tribe. I'll send you the 90 day planner along with two more free gifts, the key themes and strategies I share in my keynotes and a list of the eight books every leader must read. And by opting in, you'll also receive my monthly full timeout and 30 second timeout email newsletters each of which is loaded with practical, actionable content to help you become the most impactful leader you're capable of. Visit allensteinjr.com to join the movement. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for investing your time with us. I hope we helped you raise your game. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks now. Bye-bye. 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 I'm sorry, what? What part didn't you understand? The buh or the bye? Bye-bye. Bye-bye.